right. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here uh, at the summit. And thanks so much for being with us. And um, I don't know if this seems a little bit weird for me to say on the front end. I feel like, um, I don't know, fairly often I just need a reminder that like what we're doing now actually matters. Um, I don't know if that's weird for a pastor to say or not, but it's just, I don't know. In Denver, there's like so many incredible things to do, and it's almost easy for me to kind of drift into this thinking to be like, yeah, like some people chose to run the marathon this morning. I'm not sure why they would, but some people chose to run the marathon this morning, and um, some people decided to go into the mountains because it's still bizarrely warm here uh, in Colorado, at least for another week or so. And I don't know, like almost some of you decided to come to church, and it's just one of the many options in a city full of really good options. And and then I read a passage like the one that we just read, and we're going to study in depth now, and it's just like, and it totally changes that thinking for me to be like, like, this isn't just a good option, like, we need this, like, we, we need this, we need to sing about who Jesus is, we need to learn about who Jesus is, because it really does practically impact, really, the condition of our own souls, and really, it impacts the welfare of the people around us as well. And the reason I feel this in particular with this passage is because you're going to get a glimpse, uh, really, into how Jesus treats people. Um, and it's more, that's too general to say on the front end. It's not just the way that Jesus treats people. It's really the way that Jesus treats you as well. Uh, that's what you're going to get. And, and already, that probably doesn't even feel particularly tangible. But the reason I think this matters so much, I've been reminded of this over and over, even just over the past week, is that you and I, like, we have the propensity to treat people and even to treat ourselves in the same way that we've been treated by others. Um, you get kind of like positive examples of this. I don't know if you saw, I think it was like a nationwide uh, insurance commercial where you know, like somebody practices a random act of kindness to somebody and they feel compelled to practice a random act of kindness and so on and so forth. But I think where you see this most clearly and and even like most bizarrely a lot of times is as it pertains to when we've been treated poorly. I mean, just kind of cold hard statistics, like those of us who grew up around particular expressions of abuse or those of us who grew up around anger or those of us who grew up uh, around, I don't know, something unhealthy, like statistically speaking, we're kind of the most likely ones to replicate those mistakes even in our own lives. And like, isn't that crazy to think about? Like, let's say, for example, you grew up in a home where anger was really prevalent in in a parent or two. You know, you would think to yourself intrinsically, like, man, like, if there's anything I'm not going to replicate, it is the anger of my parents. I mean, I, I felt it, and I experienced it, and I know how much it hurts, and I know how much it is to be on the other side. I'm never going to be like that at all. And then it's like one morning at breakfast with your spouse or your roommate, like, they're chewing their cereal a little louder than normal, and you just melt down, right? You're just like, could you stop cheering, chewing your cereal in that way? Go outside with the other wild animals that are like devouring their prey. Get the heck out of here. I'm going to freak out. And all of a sudden you're like, where did that come from? It just kind of like, it just bubbled up out of nowhere. And it's like, it's just that principle that, that we tend to treat ourselves and we tend to, tend to treat other people in the same way that we've been treated. And, and the reason I think this matters so much is like, I've been thinking about this, it's like, it's just the unavoidability, the inevitability of, gosh, like, when we do life in a broken and fallen world, it's like, how do you, in a world where, like, even if you had a perfect family, you're not going to have a perfect job where you're treated well, and if you even have a perfect job, you're not going to have perfect neighbors who treat you well. Like, in this culture where we've all been treated, like, with sarcasm and callousness and anger and manipulation... Like, if this law is true, like, how do we not become callous, angry, manipulative, terrible people to ourselves and to other people around us as well? Like, how is that, how is that possible? 
And really, like, what we need is a stronger voice than all the other voices that have been hurtful to us. Like, what we need is a greater love than all the other wrongs that we've incurred over the past months and years of life. Like, we need someone greater than us and above us and stronger than us to speak and to show an act of love in such a way that, yeah, like, we're changed and we're transformed and we're able to be healthy in a culture that doesn't encourage us to be healthy whatsoever. And really, that's what this passage is all about. It's a famous passage. Many of you are probably familiar with it. All four gospel accounts of Jesus' life uh, chronicle this, but it really is a glimpse into the way that Jesus treats you. And I pray that you'll sort of receive this as good news and then think about, like, how can I multiply this in my life this week as well? And so we're going to see kind of three particular expressions of Jesus' treatment of us in this passage. Let's walk through this together. The first is this, is that Jesus gives me rest so I can pursue the welfare of other people. First, Jesus gives me rest so I can pursue the welfare of other people. And let's look at what happens here in verse 30. Verse 30 says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him, all that they had done and taught. So if you remember, last week we looked at the death of John the Baptist. The week before that, Jesus sends his disciples out to share his gospel. And now, some period of time has elapsed, they're returning back to him, they're going to tell him, here's how it's gone. And we're going to see in a little bit, like whole crowds are coming to him, so it has gone incredibly, incredibly well. It's been tremendously successful. A lot of times I like to think about what Jesus was doing almost through the lens of a startup, since we have a huge startup culture here in Denver. And it's like, man, the customer base is expanding like crazy. They have more people interested than ever before. And look at the way that Jesus responds to their good news. He's like, man, we are going into busy season, and I'm going to need you to start working nights and weekends, because we've got to make a push, and we've got to capitalize, because this is the moment, and we can't let it go away. It's like, no, you actually see him say the exact opposite in verse 31. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Like this, what Jesus says here, it's astounding to me. You know, I think we've talked about this before as a church. Like we, you know, you see that, um, I don't know, particular aspects of Christianity are offensive to every culture everywhere. And I think a lot of times in our culture, we can immediately point to like, man, the Bible talks a lot about understanding sexuality or a lot about understanding money. Those are the hardest parts of the scriptures to believe for our lives. And actually, I think this might be the hardest part. Like Jesus looking into a culture like our own that's the most overworked, never sleep, never vacation, never take a break, never take a rest culture, and saying, like in a moment that's really, really crucial, rest and sleep and get something to eat. Like I was even thinking about this. I don't know if any of you read the New York Times article that kind of went viral maybe two or three weeks ago about the work culture at uh, Amazon. Amazon is always uh, held up as the, um, yeah, I'm going to do it, the prime pun very much intended, um, example of, uh, sorry, I'm a dad now, so I get to make dad jokes, and so um, that one's for free. Um, and, uh, you know, they're always held up as the example of, like, this is what success looks like. And the New York Times did this sort of behind-the-scenes look at, like, what the work culture looks like there. I'm not sure if you saw this. It was really, really fascinating. Um, but here's what part, part of the article says. It says, new employees are told to forget the poor habits they learned at previous jobs. One employee recalled that when they hit the wall from the unrelenting pace, there is only one solution, climb the wall. 
At Amazon, workers are encouraged to tear apart one another's ideas in meetings, toil late and, uh, long and late, emails arrive past midnight, followed by text messages asking why they were not answered, and held to standards that the company boasts are unreasonably high. The internal phone directory instructs the colleagues on how to send secret feedback to one another's bosses. Employees say it is frequently used to sabotage others. Many of the newcomers filing in on Mondays may not be there in a few years. The company's winners dream up innovations that they roll out to a quarter billion customers and accrue small fortunes and soaring stocks. Losers leave or are fired in annual callings of the staff. Purposeful Darwinism, one former Amazon Human Resources director said. Some workers who suffered from cancer, miscarriages, and other personal crises said they had been evaluated unfairly or edged out rather than given time to recover. And some of you hear that and you're like, are you sure that's not where I work? Um, I had conversations with people in our our church just this past week, and I was like, surely this isn't the way it is even here in Denver. We're a little bit more laid back, and you know, we like our Fridays off so we can have long weekends. But man, like even here in Denver, I was talking to people that just work for major corporations. They're like, man, a lot of these things are true of where I work as well. What's funny about this is that I feel like kind of initially we all bristle at something like that, and we hate it. But for some of us, it's like at first we hate it, and then we almost become like addicted to that kind of pace. Like, we almost fall in love with it. It almost becomes like a badge of honor that we can wear of like, here's how tired I am, here's how much I work, here's how little sleep I get. I mean, have you even, like, I feel like I see conversations like this fairly often, even in our own city, where a group of people are talking about, like, how little sleep they've gotten, and nobody's like, oh, man, that's a shame, I'm really sorry. It's like, you got six hours of sleep, I got three hours of sleep. And somebody else is like, man, I haven't slept in a week, I'm all jacked up on Mountain Dew and Red Bull, you know? And it's like, I'm never going to sleep ever again, and it's like this, this badge of honor we wear that's like, look how important I am, look how, uh, look how needed I am, look at how indispensable I am, look at how much I'm doing, look at how much I'm killing myself. Like, would somebody just affirm that I have value and worth and that I'm making a difference, please? And Jesus, I mean, it's just unthinkable, like him bringing this at like a, I don't know, like a conference for how to grow your startup. But Jesus looks at overworked tired men and women who find their purpose and their value and their meaning and how much we do. And he says, rest, sleep, and get something to eat. See, what you're seeing is like a a nuance in the way that Jesus viewed people as opposed to the way a lot of people in our culture view people. A lot of people in our culture, and even some of us in this room, like we look at people, we look at the people that we, that we employ, we look at the people that we work alongside, and it's kind of like you're almost like a cog in a machine. You're like a unit that needs to have its efficiency maximized for the sake of wringing out of you like a dirty towel as much productivity as possible so we can make as much as possible and so I can work as little as possible and I can be as happy as possible. And Jesus, like, you know how he looked at people? he actually looked at them as people. Like, he actually looked at them as people who, who bear the image of the divine, and they had a value and worth and dignity, and they were meant to be respected and well cared for, as opposed to sort of be burnt out. And then it's like, okay, well, you're dead. It's okay. There's like a bunch of other recent grads who can take your place now. Here's the real danger of this, is like, for those of us, I won't even say those of you, because this is like, I guess more than anything, throughout this entire passage, I'm kind of preaching to myself. But for those of you who are like me, that like become addicted to the pace and validate yourself through your overwork, it's really easy to start treating other people like this as well. 
And not only to find your own value and worth in this, but also to start looking at other people and saying, like, man, if you're really going to be my friend, if you're really going to be a good employee, if you're really going to be my spouse and show me you love me, you have to prove it day in, day out, no matter what the cost is to yourself. It's funny even, I think this is why in marriage, for example, I think you see this most clearly in marriage, a lot of times in marriage you have these conversations that sort of devolve almost into this intense negotiation that's on the level of like trying to settle the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's like, okay, I will give you one night of getting up with the kid who's teething right now if you give me two afternoons of taking out the trash, but also like letting me rest during nap time instead of the kid rest during nap time. It's like, it's amazing the way that even in marriage kind of devolves into this bartering back and forth of like, how do I sort of negotiate in such a way that I make you and manipulate you to give me exactly what it is that I want? And what if we were so transformed by the fact that Jesus looks at us and loves us and sees us as full people? What if, what if we saw Jesus giving us the ultimate rest for which our souls crave? That we no longer have to validate ourselves by our overwork and our lack of sleep, but instead Jesus has given us the approval we clamor for through a work that is not by our hands whatsoever. And what if so changed by his grace, we could look at the people around us that are in the sphere of influence we've been entrusted with, and it's like, I actually care about you. I actually come into this conversation, and I'm not going to manipulate you for the sake of my own welfare, but I'm going to lay down my life as Jesus laid down his life for me for the sake of your welfare. Like, what if this week, for those of you who employ people, um, what if this week, for those of you who are in a marriage that has these sort of negotiations all the time, like, instead of coming into that conversation, sort of like trying to get exactly what it is that you want, you instead flipped it on its head and was like, sweetheart, I will not only get up in the evening, but I will stay awake during nap time as well. Like, your spouse would have no idea what to do in that circumstance. Right? Like, what if you went to an employee who was struggling and you weren't like trying to get over it as quickly as possible, but instead was like, Take as much time as you need, and I really mean that. That doesn't mean if you don't come back in like a day, you're fired. It's like an employee doesn't know what to do. Everybody wants to change the world. Everybody wants to make a difference in other people's lives. You know what's like the most countercultural thing to do in a culture that's overworked? It's like to give people some rest. Man, you could like change the world through doing that and laboring for the good of others so they can experience that as well. So Jesus, he gives us rest, and we can seek the welfare of others. Second, here's what we see. As Jesus gives me compassion, and so I can refocus my attention onto people. Jesus gives me compassion, so I can refocus my attention onto people. Now, look at this. Look at what happens. Jesus gives his disciples a call to rest. And, uh, man, this is what always happens when you plan to take a vacation. Look at verse 33. Now, many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So you're starting to see, like, an element of the success of the movement. You know, we want to take a vacation, we want to take a rest, and all of a sudden these people find Jesus and they're chasing after him. And we see later in verse 44, this isn't just like a few dozen people, like these are thousands of people trying to get to Jesus. It's an almost sort of, I mean, it's both a vivid image but also a humorous image because we see that Jesus and the disciples are on the boat, they're back on the Sea of Galilee, they're basically going to take like maybe a little bit of a, a day on the sea to relax, and all these guys are trying to chase them down, thinking like, oh, maybe we can like chase them down, which is a funny thing to think about because like, if you're on a body of water and somebody has a boat and you're on foot, like the boat always wins, right? So like for Jesus to actually like get back to these people, he has to voluntarily do it. They don't like catch him. He's like, okay, I'm turning the boat around for you guys. That's exactly what he does. And look at verse 34. He goes ashore, and he sees a great crowd, 
and he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. Now, I, I try not to do this. A lot of you know um, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and I try not to be the guy who's like, and this was what the Greek word is, just so I try to impress you. But I'm going to tell you what the Greek word is here, just because like, it's so beautiful. I try to pronounce this. It's a hard word to pronounce. Uh, the word for compassion that's used here is the word esplogniste. Esplogniste. And it's really interesting because it's like this gut-level compassion. The reason I wanted to say is because it's like a word you have to say from your gut. And it's like the degree to which, it's like this reflection of the degree to which Jesus loves this crowd. It's interesting, in the New Testament, this word is used exclusively of Jesus. It's almost like this affection for another is reserved for almost the way that God feels about people alone. And it's like this gut-level, holistic, robust like love for people. And elaborates, like, why did he feel this? He had compassion on them because, that tells us why, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is an incredibly vivid image. It's not particularly relevant to us because we live in the middle of a city, right? So you don't see, like, sheep roaming around very often. But let me tell you something. I mean, I didn't even grow up in an agrarian environment, but I know this, that if you see a sheep separated from its shepherd, you know that sheep is in tremendous harm. When it's separated from its owner, you're like, it's probably going to get picked off by a wolf and it's probably going to die. Maybe to contextualize it into the way we would talk today, it's almost like, um, I don't know, I remember this one time I was in a meeting and uh, I get this text from, mess- from my wife, Megan, and uh, she says, get to Curtis Park now. Like, that's all it says. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to get there. You know, like, you mean held a gunpoint? Has something happened? What, what exactly is it that's going on? And there's this stray dog running through the park and Megan is like furiously trying to chase through the park to catch it. Because, like, hopefully, if you have a heart whatsoever, what do you feel when you see a stray dog just roaming the streets of our city? You're like, man, that thing is separated from its owner, and it's only going to be so little time until it is going to die. Because it's not meant to be separated from its owner. That's what Jesus felt for people. Like, that degree of gut-level sadness and compassion and just devotion to people where he sees this entire crowd separated from the God who owns them because he made them and because he loves them. And he couldn't just, like, look the other way. He couldn't just see them as, like, an intrusion or an interruption on his vacation plans. It's like, man, like, you're worth turning the boat around for. I mean, this whole passage has been, like, so convicting to me because it's like, I don't know, like, I I feel like I'm pretty type A, but even for those of you who aren't particularly type A and go with the flow, I still feel like like we all have a very strong vision of kind of, like, what our day is going to look like. We just sort of wake up with the assumption of like, okay, like I'm going to work for this period of time, and then I'm going to do these errands, and going to the grocery store will take 35 minutes, and then I'll be home at this point so I can watch X number of episodes of whatever I'm plowing through on Netflix at this moment. And uh, I mean, for any of you who feel that, let me just ask you a question. How do you respond when people interrupt you? Like when, when a person gets in the way of that vision, when a person gets in the way of what it is that you hope to accomplish, are you kind of like, man, I was hoping to get into a conversation at the grocery store. If you are, you're like a way better person than I am. You're like, man, I've got 35 minutes. I don't know why I've got 35 minutes, but I've got 35 minutes to get home because I've got to watch this thing on Netflix, which I can watch at any time because it's on demand by its very nature. But I've got to get home by six. Like there's no other option whatsoever. 
And it's so convicting to me the degree to which we see people as hurdles to avoid for the sake of accomplishing our life's mission. And Jesus saw the exact opposite. They were not hurdles to avoid. They were people worth turning the boat around for. And he does just that. Because he didn't see people as impediments to the mission. He saw people as the mission. Like as his life called, that he would turn the entire, like change everything, lay him down. Because these people, they need to know me and they need to hear from me. And he does just that. It's crazy how backwards this is in our own lives. It's like, I don't know, I just feel like all of us love the idea of loving people. All of us love the idea of making a difference in the world. And then we come face to face with people. And it's like, if you could just get the heck out of my way, I'd really appreciate it. I'm trying to love people right now. Man, like, think about this. Like, at your job, like, I feel like a lot of you, especially those of you Christians, you take God's call to, like, leverage your influence at your job well. But then, like, there's annoying people at your job that are always asking questions. You're like, come on, man, stop bothering me. Like, I'm trying to love people here at work. Or this is, like, the parent. I mean, it could be the mom or the dad who's, like, particularly, um, I don't know, particularly particular about, like, how clean the house is maybe. And you have a toddler who, like, by their natures are like little Tasmanian devils just, like, causing storms and hurricanes everywhere that they go. And you, like, explode at your toddler for making a mess because you want to have a clean house for the sake of loving your family well. Right? Isn't that crazy? It's like, if you would stop making a mess, I'm trying to love you. And it's like, we'll scream at our kids in the name of it. It's like, it's crazy. Or me, I'll just, I mean... Man, I caught this this week in my own self. Like, I'm downtown, I'm writing. Um, I'll just be vulnerable with you. Like, the most stressful thing I do is try to write a sermon. I thought I'd be done with papers after I got done with college, but instead, I kind of signed up for this career where I basically write, like, a nine-ish page paper every single week, and it's due on Sunday, and a lot of people have opinions about it, and so it's really stressful to me. And, like, man, I'm, like, sitting there, and I'm downtown in the coffee shop, and I'm writing, and I need focus, and, um, man... This guy next to me is like talking so loud on his phone. Like, like I'm going to share what he shared because I don't think it's confidential when the whole downtown heard what he was talking about. All right, he was like going through, he was sitting right next to me and he was having like such a loud conversation. Like, I guess he's struggling with alcoholism and his wife finally kicked him out of the house and it wasn't safe for him to be around his kids anymore. And so he had spent a little bit of money, but she cut him off from the bank, uh, their bank assets. And so he was actually homeless, like living on the streets. So he had just been starting to do that every once in a while and he's pleading with her to come home. And it's like this incoherent, back and forth, loud, tearful conversation conversation. And man, I'm just thinking to myself, if you could shut up, this would be fantastic because I'm trying to write a sermon about the way that Jesus treats people. Like, it's like, what is wrong with me? Man, it is crazy, isn't it? That like, that's where we just need Jesus. Like, we need Jesus to flip our thinking on our head to say that like people, they're not hurdles to avoid. Like, they're people worth turning the boat around for. Like, they're not interruptions. Like, they are the mission. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, he said, the great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own or real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls interruptions are precisely one's real life, the life God is sending one day by day. What one calls one's real life is a phantom of one's own imagination. Isn't that interesting? Like, what if we looked at people this week, at our jobs or our kids or whatever it might be, and we're just like, this is exactly what God is sending me. They're not getting in the way of this grand dream that somewhere... It's, it's always easy. It's always easy to overlook people in the name of some grand dream that doesn't require you to sacrifice or actually impact people. It's always easy to do that. The opportunities are right in front of you. They are. Let me hit one more quick thing and then we'll move on to the third 
the kind of way that Jesus treats people. Um, I feel like a question that arises for me as I study this then um, is, do you feel like a little bit of the tension where Jesus is like, okay, like take the day off. Oh no, there's a lot of people here. Don't take the day off. Does anybody feel that tension particularly? I don't know if this is just me, but I'm like, I struggle with that. Like at what point do I say yes to things? At what point do I say no to things? And it's really interesting to me the degree to which Jesus makes this decision out of some sort of like awareness of what it is that God is calling him to do. Like he doesn't just say yes to opportunities because he has to say yes to opportunities, but he has some sort of awareness, some sort of discernment to say yes to certain things and no to certain things. Because we saw earlier in Mark, there's people coming and flooding to him. And he's like, nope, sorry, done. I got to go to this next town and preach there also. And it's kind of hard. Like, how do you get that even in your own life? And here's like the big question I feel like, because I've been studying this, I've been like working through in my own life. It's like, it's like, one, like, what is God really calling me to? And does God use calling? Like, is the vehicle for God's calling to opportunities, is it shame, guilt, or fear? Is it ever shame, guilt, or fear? Or is it this type of, like, gut-level emotion for another? And it's really interesting for me. A lot of times, the reason I overwork myself and the reason I overcommit and the reason I don't rest is not because, like, I don't know. It's not because I'm turning on opportunities where I'm literally broken for another. It's more like I just feel guilty. Or somebody's done a really good job of sort of manipulating and making me feel ashamed. Or I'm just afraid. And it's not like a love afraid. Not like, man, I'm afraid of what might potentially happen to you. It's more of a fear of like, are you going to think differently of me if I don't say yes to you? And man, I, I love the fact that Jesus, he's motivated not by guilt or fear or shame or anger. That's the way the world motivates. And it is a tremendously poor motivator. Like, Jesus is motivated, and he says yes to the opportunities where this sort of divine calling that's manifested by this gut-level love or whatever he's being called to. And so I've just kind of practically been like, okay, those opportunities, I'm going to walk and say yes and sacrifice and push myself beyond what's comfortable. I had something like that just last night at about 11 p.m., which is, I look tired, that's exactly why. And there's other opportunities where it's just like, man, I'm going to have enough courage, enough faith to believe, like, I'm not the savior of the world. I do have limitations. I'm going to accept my finiteness, and I'm not going to walk out of fear, guilt, or shame. So I don't know if that's helpful, but thank you. Oh, good. I'm glad I said that then. Um, All right, third and finally, uh, Jesus gives me provision so I can be generous towards people. Jesus gives me provision so I can be generous towards people. Now, it's interesting Jesus gets flooded by this crowd. Uh, we see in verse 44, it's 5,000 men. That doesn't even count the women and children. So you're talking, I mean, a huge group of people. In verse 45, it's interesting what happens. It says, when it grew late, Jesus' disciples came to him and they said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat, which is a fairly reasonable observation by the disciples, right? They're, they're kind of starting to say, okay, this is a crowd but, I mean, you know how this goes. You first get hungry, and then you get hangry, right? That combination of hungry, angry. And, man, you don't want, like, thousands of people hangry. And so it's like, before this crowd turns into a mob, get them out of here. We're, you know, we're kind of scheduling this thing. Uh, so that when dinner time comes, it's like, okay, well, everybody just go get something to eat. And it's interesting the way that Jesus responds to this. He answered them, this is verse 37, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of, blo- of bread? bread (laughs) and give it to them to eat, which is interesting. The disciples are kind of doing the math. So 200 denarii about this day were about eight months wages. If you're working kind of a normal job and making what most people do. So you're talking like a small fortune. You're talking almost an annual salary to provide food for all of these people. And it's almost um, like, have you ever gone to dinner before 
and you didn't sort of specify on the front end who's paying. Like, isn't that the worst feeling in the world? And then it gets, like, even worse when somebody, you know, the other person who's there, like, they order an appetizer, and then they order drinks, and then they order, like, from the expensive part of the menu, not the cheap part of the menu. And then they're like, yeah, we would love to do dessert. Like, why don't we just try the whole, like, the whole dessert menu? Why don't you just bring out one of everything and we'll share? And you're kind of doing the math in your head, and you're like, I'm going to have to work eight months in order to pay for this bill, like, if this person isn't going to pay. That's what's going through the disciples' head in this moment. They're like, oh, my gosh, Jesus, like, we can't feed all these people. What in the world is going on? Now, you might know the rest of the story. What happens from there is um, the, the, uh, somebody brings to Jesus uh, five loaves of bread. They're almost more like biscuits and then two fish, which don't think like a beautiful salmon. Think like a, a sardine almost. Like it was basically, this was a, a lunch of the day. They bring it to Jesus. He blesses, he multiplies it. And all of a sudden he provides for all of these people. Now, what happens are a couple things that I want to hit at two different levels so we can kind of understand this and apply this to our own lives. Um, one is just the astounding practical provision that Jesus has for people. That Jesus just sort of throws this spontaneous feast for his friends. And it's so different than all the other feasts of the day, right? Like Mark wrote this in a particular way that it's juxtaposed from like Herod's feast, for example, that just preceded this, where Herod uses his power and his influence to kill people, not to bless people. Or if you knew anything about the religious customs of the day, like none of the people that were partaking of this feast ever would have been invited to a religious leader's home of this day. Like they weren't kosher and it wasn't clean and nothing like this would have existed. And Jesus, out of this unparalleled love and sacrifice and kindness towards men and women in this crowd, out of his gut level love for them, he provides lunch for them. Man, like... Just that little glimpse of generosity. It's a glimpse into the generosity that Jesus has given to us. Like, he meets our daily needs. He provides for us. Even the very breath that fills our lungs, that enables us to work, that enables us to put food on the table, is a gift from him. I don't know about you, but I didn't just, like, I didn't get, like, a master's degree in, like, self-existence. Like, it was just gifted to me. And that you would have the correct posture of the kindness that God has shown towards you to enable you to do what it is that you do. And that sort of generosity expressed by God towards you would, would propel your heart to desire to be generous to others as well. And we desire for you to be generous. We don't, you know, we don't even do an offering weekly, so we're not like after your money. But like, we do desire for you to be financially generous to this church, to the people around you in really anonymous ways that will never be tax-deductible donations whatsoever. Like, we, we desire for you to be generous. And the primary motivation for this is not because we need you to be generous or those people even need you to be generous, but you need you to be generous. Like, Jesus says that our money goes where our hearts are. Like, uh, you look at your money, and it's a reflection of what your heart treasures the most. And that's always what saddens me. In an American culture where the average American spends about 103, 104% of their income on themselves because we'll even go to debt to meet our most basic needs and desires and wants, it's like, what does that say about the welfare of our souls? We want you to be so propelled by the gift of God towards you that you are generous towards the people around you as well. But there's an even greater motivation that goes much deeper than this. It's really interesting. Um, I want to draw your attention to verses 42 and 43. It's a little line that Mark just kind of throws in there that I think is really, really fascinating. Verse 42 and verse 43. It says, They all ate, and they were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Now, here's what's really interesting to me. 
is we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that Jesus, in this moment, the story is unfolding in such a way that if you knew anything about the Old Testament, you would have realized this is not just a reenactment, but it is a reinitiation of the way that God dwells amongst his people following the Exodus. So the story of the Exodus is God uh, frees his people from the bondage of slavery underneath the Egyptians. He liberates them into a wilderness. And then when they go into the wilderness, God meets their daily need. He actually provides literal bread for them on a daily basis. But the catch is, here's the really one little nuance from the way that Jesus is doing the story and the way the story goes in the Old Testament, is there's no leftovers. Like over and over again, there's no leftovers whatsoever. And so like, why would Jesus do it in this way? Here's what's, so initi- here's what's so astounding. As Jesus is making a startling claim, Jesus is saying, one, God is dwelling amongst his people in the flesh. He is here. He has arrived. But not only that, but a greater provision has arrived in your midst as well. Like God fed your, fed your stomachs with literal bread, but now God is going to heal and satisfy your soul because I am the bread. And if you know anything about what happens after this, about a year after all of this goes down, Jesus gathers his closest friends and his followers and he breaks bread and he pours out wine and he says, this is anticipating the plan all along, that my body will be broken for you, my blood will be shed for you for the sake of the forgiveness of your sins and the reconciliation between you and God. Like Jesus basically is saying, I'm not just going to meet a basic need of your hunger, I'm going to satisfy your deepest need of your division between you and your God. And it's when you understand that this is where Jesus is headed that we return back to our first idea of the fact that, like, how is it that we can actually treat people in these ways? I mean, even if any of you are thinking kind of thoughtfully about this, you're still at some point kind of feeling in your your hearts, it's like, man, wait a second. Like, I want to treat other people this well. I want to love people this well. I want to be generous towards other people this well. But, like, and I get excited about stuff like this, and it goes like a couple of days, and then somebody treats me like crap, and then I want to treat somebody else like crap because for some reason that makes me feel a little bit better. And it's like, how do you escape in a world where people treat you so poorly, treating people so poorly? Like, how do you treat people so well? Now, I was thinking about this this past week. I was thinking about, many of you know, like, I love um, history. I love the Second World War in particular. And there's this um, story, I feel like captures this real well. Um, Many of you have probably heard of Auschwitz, which is like the most well-known concentration camp uh, for the Nazi regime. About 1.1 to 1.6 million people are estimated to die to have been murdered there, which you don't. It's hard to kind of count that number. And there was a, there was a rule at Auschwitz that if somebody tried to escape, which you know everybody's trying to escape and get out of that environment, somebody's trying to escape. Um, 10 people would be killed in that guy's place. And so there was this afternoon where this guy tried to escape. I think it failed. Uh, but the judges or the, uh, the, uh, the soldiers decided they still had to punish the people at the camp. So they call everybody out and uh, they have everybody line up. And there's a thousand or so people. And they just start reading out names of 10 people that are going to have to be killed. They're going to be killed by putting in what was called the hunger bunker, where they'd be stripped naked and basically put in a hole in the ground and be left to die. There's this guy there. Um, I'm going to read this once. He's, he's Polish, so my pronunciation is not particularly good of this. Um, where is this guy's name? There it is. Franciszek Gajownizic. Flawless, right? Um, let's just call him Francis for short. Um, he's there, and he's lined up, and he's kind of like, as he recounts the story, he's kind of like, you know, I just assume that the odds are in my favor, and I only have to be one of 
you know, several thousand people to avoid being called on this list, and it gets to the seventh name, eighth name, and then all of a sudden he hears his name called. And everybody cried out in these moments, right? Like, nobody wants to die. I mean, nobody wants to be killed, especially in such an inhumane way. And he cries out. He cries out, I have a wife, and I have two boys, and like, I, like please don't take me, which everybody's making this plea, and the soldiers have no sympathy whatsoever, and they're pulling him to the front in order to strip him naked and to basically condemn him to his death. And all of a sudden, he hears from behind him, stop and wait, and I will die in this man's place. It was this Catholic priest by the name of Maximilian Kolbe. He was super influential. He had two PhDs. He had a lot of, he had a lot of prestige and renown, but he had been thrown into, into Auschwitz because he had been housing Jews in Poland and trying to save their lives. And the guards, you know, normally they wouldn't approve this type of behavior, but they relented. And they let Kolbe go and die in the place of this man. Now, here's what's really interesting about this, is like because Francis, our, our buddy Francis, uh, went on to live and survive, like we have a lot of his like reflections on that moment. And here's what's really interesting. Here's something he wrote back about this moment. He said this. He said, because of Maximilian Kolbe, every breath that I take, everything that I do, every single moment is to me like a gift. Now, can you imagine experiencing a horror as terrible as that one. I mean, maybe the most horrific thing that has happened in the history of the world and being on the other side of it and looking back on your life and saying that every moment is a gift. How is that possible when you've been treated so poorly to that degree? It's like one act of love, one single act of sacrificial, life-changing, more powerful love can turn the tide of even the worst of treatment that we've received. And so in this moment, Jesus brings the scene to a conclusion saying, there's no greater love than this, that somebody would lay down his life for his friends. And it is exactly what he has done for you. And it is exactly what he has done for me. And it is exactly what breaks the bondage of a lifetime of brokenness and a lifetime of being treated poorly and a lifetime of abuse and a lifetime of manipulation that you can write a different story with your life. Let's receive that and believe that as good news and live out of that posture that it's true. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. And we thank you that even at this moment, the plan is for you to go and for you to die. What sacrifice, what a glimpse of you pushing through the crowds to take on the punishment that we deserve. And I pray that it's that single act of love that would undo the ways that we have been treated in the past and would liberate us to be generous and to be compassionate and to be loving and to seek the welfare of others is that that would be the legacy of our lives as opposed to simply replicating the hurts and the abuses we've experienced around us. God, by the power of your grace and your gospel, please let that break in to our souls and spill out of our lives. And we ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus who makes this all possible. Amen.